This episode of You in the Ring is brought to you by Grad House. One of the best kept secrets on campus, the Grad House is for everyone. They offer a range of house-made meals that cater to diverse dietary needs. And with weekly specials, you're sure to find something new every time you visit. Located right off the bus loop of UVic, the Grad House is a great place for lunch, dinner, or just hanging out with your friends. The Grad House. You don't have to be a grad student to eat here. Does it add a, a political element to it, the fact that it's a university and that it, it garners more media attention? Sure. Of course it does. I mean, it, it kind of reminds me of, like, the work of Anonymous. Hey, I'll be honest with you, Andrew. It bugs me that there are cases that are, that are unsolved and that could always be unsolved. In 2012, there was a break-in. Some unknown perpetrators entered the main administration building at the University of Victoria in the middle of the night. And usually incidents like this don't get a huge amount of media attention, but this one was different. If you lived in Victoria or worked at UVic in 2012, you might have heard about it. Or you might have been one of the over 11,000 people who had something very, very personal stolen. You're listening to You in the Ring on CFUV 101.9 FM on the Songhees and Hussanic territories of the Lekwungen and Sanchathan speaking people, also known as Victoria. Why don't you just introduce yourself for the record, kind of give your title and how you want to be known on the episode. Sure. Uh, thanks, Andrew, and good morning. Uh, right now, we are at the San Angeles Police Department. It's April 16th, 2019. It's about 11.15 in the morning. My name is Detective Sergeant Damien Kowalowicz, K-O-W-A-L-E-W-I-C-H of the San Angeles Police Department. We're talking about a, a case that happened on January 7th, uh, 2012, uh, at the University of Victoria involving uh, quite a significant uh, break and enter and subsequent theft from, uh, from one of your buildings there. Detective Kowalowicz wasn't working this case when it took place, but he's been a detective for 14 years. I knew the file. We were aware of the file. It was quite a... Uh, quite a big deal at the time. It all started in early 2012 at the Michael Williams building, which is the main administration building. We're of the belief that the actual break and enter itself happened at about 11.30 at night on January 7th. Um, there was a, an electronic um, timestamp in which something was disconnected at that time within the building. And this wasn't some slipshod job. Well, they entered the building uh, by uh, by removing um, removing a portion of an entryway. So uh, I'm not going to get into the exact specifics, but it, it was um, uh, somewhat sophisticated. They even cased the joint before they went in. So uh, we are of the belief that this was a, uh, a planned event, that they had visited there before, that they targeted it on a weekend for a reason, knowing that the administrative building was um, open on, uh, you know, business hours, Monday to Friday. Detective Kowalowicz has seen a lot of break-ins working with the Saanich Police Department. This wasn't the first break-in in our UVic, and it won't be the last. When police arrived at the scene, it seemed like a pretty standard B&E. To speak in general terms, the items that were stolen are very consistent with your, with your average commercial break-in enter. Missing computer equipment, some cash other valuable property. 
But what we didn't know what we were getting into was um, the loss of uh, the one item that um, affected so many people. And that was, uh, that was found out by, um, by investigators as we went along. And um, the decision was made very early to bring in the detective division to, to, to oversee and to investigate this. That one item was a USB stick containing the personal banking information and social insurance numbers of thousands of people who were past and present employees of UVic over the past two years. The most important detail about this USB was that it was not encrypted. And encryption is a way to conceal data. It basically turns information into code so that people who aren't supposed to be able to access that data can't. I know once investigators learned that there was a USB stick um, that that had been taken from uh, from this break and enter uh, um, containing and and the numbers I mean we're not specific on the exact numbers anywhere from eleven to thirteen thousand um, people's information employees and past employees information on this USB stick um, and that data on the USB stick included uh, social insurance numbers and bank account information. So right there, you know, we are obviously thinking about identity theft and potential loss of uh, funds and impersonation of of these people. And um, to, to manage that, but it wasn't easy. It got very serious very quickly. We pulled out all the stops on this. We um, we took it very seriously, as you can imagine we would. Uh, we called in our major crime uh, detectives. We called in our forensic investigate investigation section to the scene. And it was Detective Koala, which says, like a crime show on TV. What, what the forensics officers did, and we've all watched CSI, and it's actually not that far off a lot of the things that you're seeing on television. We, um, we looked for fingerprints. We seized items that were left behind for potential DNA. Maybe in another case, this level of investigation would have turned up some valuable evidence. So as you know, uh, every every sip of a coffee cup you take, every cigarette you smoke, um, you leave that behind. Guess what? You leave your DNA behind. And we've successfully solved a lot of crimes uh, through that. But not this time. So we seized items from the crime scene. And analyzed them. Uh, we obviously took photographs. We analyzed the um, the damage done to to enter in the building. Um, try to compare that to any other recent break and enters. You know, um, for damage for for entry methods. The USB was in a locked safe, but the safe was not secured well to the floor. So they just made off with the entire thing. A lot of people were criticizing the university for not having more robust security measures in place. And there was a lot of pressure on the police because of how many people were affected. On a, on a personal note, for, for the police officers, there's, there's definitely uh, an enhanced level of uh, responsibility, I think, and urgency. Because uh, we, we put several media releases out on, on these thefts knowing that there would be a lot of eyes on it. And even though this job was sophisticated, the detective suspects that finding the USB was just a lucky break. People that are breaking into commercial businesses are looking, for the first thing they're looking for is what's called the cash float. 
You may have heard of this before. So it's typically businesses leave a little bit of money always overnight for the next employees to come on shift in the morning so they have a little bit to you know give change out to. So it's usually under two, three hundred bucks. And in this case, um, actually, there was some cash stolen and it was about that amount. So uh, in my experience, these brick and enters primarily are going, uh, they're going for, for money or, or goods that can be easily sold or, or exchanged for something like that. The fact that these, uh, and I say these because I believe there's probably more than one person given the amount of items stolen. Uh, I, I'd be very surprised if their sole intent was to go in for this USB stick. But as a result of finding it in the fashion in which it was located, um, I assume that they <clears throat> determined it was valuable. Several days later, on January 18th, the police got a call from a postal worker. And said, there's a garbage bag full of these items. And uh, the, the case was still pretty fresh in people's minds. I mean, at this, at this point, it was a couple weeks old and um, still garnering some media attention, I believe. And what they found in that garbage bag was very unusual. January 18th, items believed to be uh, from the break and enter uh, were found dumped in a, in a post box, Canada post box um, in Langford, mm. in Langford, British Columbia, so uh, uh, not too far away. Um, the items uh, included laptops and flash drives, all which had been rendered inoperable. Obviously, uh, the forensic section again looked over these items, looked for fingerprints, looked for DNA, for any clues. Um, but there was no data actually recoverable from the devices. But it got even weirder. And included in the, in the bag was a note. And this is not a normal thing for any old break and enter. It's something that doesn't happen that often when, um, you know, a note is left. I mean, a lot of times items are, are recovered, they're found and... They can be dumped or they're found uh, on people because of serial numbers or whatever. But having the items dumped in a post box and having a note attached is very unique. So this note. And, and I'll read it verbatim. I will start off by answering your most important question. The information on these drives was not copied, distributed, or exploited. We want no part of everyday people living in fear that their personal information is being used against them to take their hard-earned money. It is hard enough to survive without something like that happening. It's is not about hurting people. It's about life and its many avenues. My avenue is different from these people's and I don't feel right taking from them. One day, I will be allowed to run my path free from the things I blame. One last time, the information was not copied, distributed, or exploited. Truly sorry for the level of inconvenience this has caused. Criminals were human before they were criminals, dot, 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 in most cases. So that, that, was, a, <laughs> that was a strange twist. It was so unclear what all this meant not that helpful to the investigation uh, once you get past uh, finding out that, you know, there's no fingerprints or DNA that can help. And because they don't know if the people who broke in were looking for items with data on them or just valuable items, the search to find them became that much more difficult. You know, I, I don't know what was going through their mind. 
And all I know is that when when we learned this information about the um, the data the data breach, um, along with the other items, cash, computer equipment, small electronic items, uh, the the main concern for us <clears throat> was that that USB stick. That was our focus. We wanted the other items back, of course, but knowing the impact it had on you know over ten thousand people and and their stress levels and, and potential financial loss for them, that, that was our focus and that did up our, up our level of uh, concern. So why was this such a big deal to have this information? So the, the two main pieces of information here that were taken were bank account numbers for direct deposit purposes and social insurance numbers. So I think a mitigating factor here is, you know, the easiest, the easiest fraud, you know, that we see typically are credit card frauds. So this one would be a little more challenging um, to say, you know, to walk into a bank with someone's bank account number and their SIN number. I think it's fair to say most bank tellers would still tell you where the door is. Do you know what I mean? Um, it's still very important information. And I think used with other pieces of information, it could be damaging, but it would, it would take some work mm-hmm. still. Yeah. And because this information was so important and could have such a huge impact on so many people, the detectives who were on the case didn't take the recovery of the alleged items as an indication that this was over. You have to continue to investigate because, first of all, you don't know exactly, you know, who dropped this off, what these items are, if they're even the real items. Is this some kind of a situation where somebody's doing this to get a rise out of the public or the police department or trying to divert attention. Um, we don't know. We still don't know. Um, so you have to keep your, your eyes wide open when this kind of thing happens. And the items were so damaged, the notes so cryptic, that it made them suspicious. They were. They were, they were damaged beyond, uh, you know, uh, reading ability through electronic devices. The level of uh, effort to require the to render the drives inoperable uh, and the intentions intentions of these people, um, you know, it concerned us. Um, it appeared that the items could have been a, a mock-up of the originals and uh, we were of the belief it was not the originals. Really? Yeah. But there were some leads that the police followed up on. Uh, you know, bear with me, but the police just can't, you know, order somebody to talk to them. So if, you know, if, if Joe Blow is, is, we'll call him a person of interest, and we, we suspect Joe Blow, you know, stole the golden, the golden crown, and we go knock on Joe Blow's door, he can not answer his door. He can tell us to beat it. He can open the door. He can talk to us for an hour. So a variety of, of responses can happen. Um, from there, um, you know, that'll, that'll gauge our, our next uh, decisions. So if, if the individual is uh, not wanting to talk to us and maybe acting more suspicious, then we have options like surveillance teams or we have, um, you know, we can start, you know, really digging into his history and find out where these people were during the time of the break and enter. So, um, that is something that we did do during this investigation. We had 
you know, no surprise, we had several people that we believed, hey, this is similar to their actions in the past. Uh, people that have that have committed commercial break and enters uh, in a similar fashion. But it was like whoever did this just disappeared into thin air and didn't leave a trace. In a case like this, where it's you know there's nobody standing there with uh, with the hammer in their hand, so to speak, uh, it's it is challenging. And like I said earlier, our forensic team did a, a very very comprehensive uh, investigation of the scene. So from there, we start using unconventional methods, and we we try everything we can. This uh, this case was broadcast on Crime Stoppers. So that has a huge viewership and listenership. It's on the radio and television and, and the internet. So we put it out on Crime Stoppers. We liaise with other police agencies. Uh, we, um, we communicated with our intelligence section, which deals with confidential informants. Confidential informants, or CIs, are people who give the police information but remain completely anonymous. But even with Crime Stoppers and other police departments helping out, nothing turned up much to the disappointment of those working on the case. And yeah, I mean, it, hey, I'll be honest with you, Andrew. It bugs me that there are cases that are, that are unsolved and that will always, that will probably, that could always be unsolved. Which means that all the data might still be in the hands of whoever stole it. And this strange display might just be a way to make the police stop looking. Yeah, you, you I think as an investigator, police agency, and probably as one of the uh, persons who lost their data, you sh- you want this to be the real the real items. You want this to be over um, in your in your heart, and you you want you know it to be real. So eleven thousand social insurance numbers and banking info could still be out there. This is an open case, and we have made no rests in regards to the break and enter and the theft. And by the way, the media during this time was in an absolute frenzy over this. The irony of a data breach through a break and enter at an institution full of people who teach and study data security is rich. The fact that this was due to a failure on the university's part was not a good look for UVic. But the university was doing a lot on their end to mitigate the situation and to work alongside the police investigation. We both had our roles and... You know, we stayed in our own lanes to to an extent, and I like to think it. You know, it, it worked well um, with our responsibilities that way. They notified all eleven thousand eight hundred and forty five people who were affected, set up a phone line and a website to provide information and answer questions. They even let the banks know that there would be a couple thousand disgruntled customers who'd be needing to change their accounts in the coming days. And they paid for credit monitoring services for anyone affected by the data breach, which is not cheap. And the president of the university at the time, David Turpin, commissioned an external review by the former BC Privacy Commissioner to investigate the security of sensitive information at UVic. So before we go any further, I want to tell you what privacy commissioners are and about something called the Personal Information Protection Act. The Personal Information Protection Act, or PIPA is this thing that's supposed to govern the collection, use, and disclosure of personal information by organizations, organizations like universities. PIPA is there to protect both a person's right to have their information be secure and the need of organizations to collect sensitive information. When the Personal Information Protection Act is violated, like for instance, a USB stick containing social insurance numbers and banking information is stolen from a university, 
someone called the Privacy Commissioner of BC comes in to investigate. The Privacy Commissioner of BC is an appointed position, and basically their job is to enforce two main acts, the Freedom of Information and Protection of Privacy Act, FIPA, and the Personal Information Protection Act, PIPA. So three months after the B&E of 11,000 people's nightmares, the Privacy Commissioner of BC, Elizabeth Dunham, did an investigation and released a pretty scalding report that basically roasted Uvic for letting this happen. She called the whole thing foreseeable and preventable and cited the enormous costs that were incurred by the mistake. The findings were that Uvic failed to have appropriate safeguards for sensitive data, i.e. they didn't encrypt the USB. But the university did satisfy their legal obligations in the response to the data breach. She made five recommendations for the university. Number one, the University of Victoria should formally review their privacy and security policies at a minimum of every three years. Up until this point, Uvic was only updating security policies every seven years, which is a really long time not to change protocols, given how fast technology changes and how easy it would be to break in if you knew where the alarms were and how to disarm them, which is what happened with this break-in. Number two. The university should reassess the physical security of the financial services area to determine whether it is necessary to alarm the entire building and to assess other buildings on campus where personal information is stored. In this case, the alarms were obviously not sufficient, so she recommended assessing other buildings with valuables to prevent further break-ins. Number three. The university should develop a comprehensive policy, procedure, training, and technical solution to ensure as required, that personal information stored on laptops and other mobile security devices is protected as per Section 30 of FIPA. Section 30 of FIPA, the Freedom of Information and Protection of Privacy Act, states that a public body must protect personal information in its custody or under its control by making reasonable security arrangements. The last two recommendations have to do with developing policies to do risk assessments of data banks at UVic and then providing those to the Privacy Commissioner's office for a review. Overall, this was a really rattling experience for a lot of people. Imagine waking up one day and being told that your identity might have been stolen and someone has all your banking information. After the break, we talk with someone who did, but it was seven years later. This episode of You in the Ring is brought to you by The Grad House. One of the best kept secrets on campus, The Grad House is for everyone. They offer a range of house-made meals that cater to diverse dietary needs. And with weekly specials, you are sure to find something new every time you visit. Located right off the bus loop, The Grad House is a great place for lunch, dinner, or just hanging out with friends. The Grad House. You don't have to be a grad student to eat here. You know what? I actually had no idea about the stolen USB. Like, mm -hmm. literally, I've only found out about it through this podcast. Katie Sage is the program director at CFUV, and we share an office. Yes. Hi. And as the producers and I were talking about this episode in the office, Katie was overhearing us talk about data breaches and 2012 and UVic. And they were kind of talking about, like, timelines and 
It's interesting because the first time I heard, even heard about the stolen USB was like Coco sending out a message over the listserv to like, hey, are you interested in getting involved with the CFUB podcast? We're following the story about like a stolen USB stick. Coco was our volunteer coordinator and sometimes sends out emails to all the volunteers about our podcasts. And then I was like, whoa, that's weird. I wonder what that is like. And then kind of like, you know, sitting next to Mary and Brendan coming in and them having this offhanded conversation and then me being like, what? Oh, it was like at UVic. Oh, it was during this time. Oh, and being like, oh yeah, whoa, what? There was a stolen USB. And then just like weirdly putting these convoluted pieces together and like these light bulbs going off in my mind being like, that's what that was oh that's so weird and kind of realizing what that like weird letter that I got actually meant so what was in that letter what was Katie doing at UVic in 2012 and how did they miss this well that is a whole different story basically Katie had just moved to Victoria from Peterborough Ontario and the first job they got here was a contract job with UVic, moving an art collection out of a basement. The University of Victoria was looking to, they needed to move their collection, which was in the basement of the university center, kind of near where Spokes is located. And the building was, needed to be earthquake-proofed and... So they needed to do a lot of like seismic updates is the language that we're using. So I was hired for a four month contract to help basically like handle and package the entire, at the time the gallery was called the Maltwood Gallery and then move it to the UVic Legacy Gallery. So we moved the entire collection from the basement of the university center to multiple locations around Victoria that the university owns and is caretaking. They finished the contract in late March of 2011. So their work history at UVic was a distant memory by the time January of 2012 rolled around. And they had since moved houses since they worked at UVic. But their past roommate had forwarded an official looking piece of mail along because they looked like a T4. And then when I opened it, I was just kind of like, what is this? And like, I didn't really understand. And I, I think I kind of brushed it off as like, oh, what? It felt like kind of like a letter that you get from a bank or something. Like, you know, when they, you file for like a credit card and it's just like blocks and blocks of text and you're like, what? Mm -hmm. And it's like not really for you. It's for like masses of people and you're kind of like why am I getting this I don't understand the implications of it it was never really explained in the letter it was the letter from UVic notifying Katie that their personal information had been leaked they kind of like talked around it it was so jargony legal like blocks of text that I had really no idea what it meant and I didn't really understand the implications of what, why I was getting this. 
it meant that their information had been stolen along with all those other people. So. Yeah, and like I think there was I think I remember them being like not even like an apology, but just kind of like be aware, like this notice, like notice. But since learning the ins and outs of the whole USB debacle felt a bit jarring, to be honest. It was like, oh, that was like, that's, you're talking about something that happened to me, but it didn't, no one ever like explained it to me and I didn't really like flag it as what it actually meant to me because it just was like so inaccessible. It shines a different light on that weird letter from the university back in 2012. It's so strange because I feel like it, I don't know, they probably had to like protect themselves and that's just why it was like so legal jargony, but it's kind of cool to think about it in this context now, like, ooh, there's like a stolen USB story. And now that it's more clear, it's obvious how big of a deal it was. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure lots of like upper level like uvic tenure profs were probably like oh my god this is horrible like what kind of an institution do i work for you know at that point like i didn't work at uvic anymore it was so convoluted i had no idea you know i wasn't connected anymore i mean flash forward to Mm -hmm. many years later and you know that's not true like i'm in it again Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so I guess, like, how speaking to that, how do you feel now, like, knowing that this happened at the institution you currently work for? How does that make you feel regarding, you know, the information and data that they have on you right now? Yeah, oh, I feel like I have a lot more to lose now. And, I mean, it's interesting because I work pretty closely with some of the... IT like support people and I know that they are working to like make UVic like super secure and um even just like working with offices here and having like certain computer systems and like we had one of our computers like hacked and it was because the password was like one two three four um whoops um and they like basically had to like take the computer and scrub it and you know they put they put in a lot of care to making sure that things are secure now and I think you know what my feeling is that they there's like this irony to the situation which is that they probably like educated this person in that they're like became so good at computers and hacking and information from like going to this institution and then it's like using you know the information that they learned from their education to then like use it against the institution and like the other 11,844 people whose data is who knows where by now nothing actually happened yeah my credit rating is great and I haven't noticed any weird money out of my bank account I mean it's interesting because like after that time I went through like a really 
I got I was like really poor after that and like was really struggling financially so if someone did try to steal from me they'd be like this person has $20 in their bank account like what (laughs) okay which makes Katie think it was some kind of anarchist plot I mean it it kind of reminds me of like the work of anonymous just like I don't know what the gain was but I know that I'm, I was not a target at that point, but they, you know, they had my information and I'm okay. Nothing happened to me. I can't speak for anyone else, but I don't know. There's kind of like this, it feels like a kind of DIY, like person trying to be like, maybe it was a dare, you know, like I'm going to do this thing because I want to like see how far I can push my skills and they have no hard feelings about it now i mean i think that's kind of bad (laughs) but this whole debacle is still technically ongoing here's detective kowalowicz the investigation is still open and i know for many listeners you could be thinking open uh you know seven years old we don't you know we don't close cases that are unsolved at the Saanich police. But the police aren't actively out there trying to find the people who did this. The investigation is much more passive now. As you can imagine, in seven years, people retire, people get transferred, people get promoted, and uh, well, life goes on. So I just want to assure anyone you know who's who's concerned about something like this, this this crime in particular, where you know uh, this data was lost, that we still continue to keep this file open and uh, any leads that come forward will be followed up immediately and appropriately. Like that incident, do you remember hearing about it back then? Oh yes. Can you, can you tell me what you, <laughs> what you thought about it at the time? Uh, yeah, I was pretty angry. Um, nothing about that is standard. That is Caleb Short. I'm a security guy. Actually, he's a software engineering professor at UVic. His main areas are databases and software architecture. And he has a different perspective on UVic's data breach. You have to you have to view breaches. This is so viewing a breach, you really have to view it in in light of there's a, there's a motto actually that a lot of security guys live by and it's a POC or get or a GTFO. Um, and it basically means proof of concept or, you know, GTFO, because there are, there's lots of hand waving and there's lots of, there's lots of, um, like, oh my goodness, this could happen. POC or GTFO. Show me that it's actually, it's actually possible. Like write the code to make this exploit happen or don't even bother me. There's too much, uh, the sky is falling in security. But obviously this wasn't a, the sky is falling situation. Um, with this one. You kind of have to view it with a bit of a reserved mentality of what is capable. There were just so many more unknowns that they had to be more cautious. One, that USB should have never been stored like that. Unencrypted, it should have never been copied. And usually super sensitive information, when you copy it like that, it comes from sort of a database and usually there's a log. Um, So check one might have failed because there was no log or maybe there was and nobody 
was reading the logs or it didn't there's maybe didn't set off an alarm a, a mass copy of everyone's personal information got copied or yeah it got saved um, so there's check one check two why a USB is being used in an office like that with very sensitive information I know very high security situations ban USBs completely they ban phones they ban Pretty much you walk in with, with, you have a little card, right? A key card to get in, and that is it. The entire room itself is a Faraday cage. You can't even transmit out. Um, and that's, obviously, that's overkill for a university. Faraday cages are these big things that block electromagnetic fields. And so even though we don't quite need this level of security, Caleb says that the way that our technology is evolving... It's a lot easier to hack an institution than it is to walk in and break through a door. This is, it's kind of ironic that they physically went in because sometimes you don't even have to do that. Most times you don't. Um, so that saving of the USB, super weird. Use of a USB, super weird. Unencrypted, come on. Just, you know you're saving it. So whoever did this on on purpose, the fact that it was unencrypted, there, there are USB sticks that encrypt by default. Um, really, there's check three. Putting it in a safe was probably the compensator to be like, oh, well, it's not encrypted. I'll put it into a safe. You're right. And that would compensate for that. Except that, as we know, the people who broke in pried it off the floor and carried it out the door. If we're talking about standard backup procedure, usually you would back it up onto a drive. The, the drive is encrypted, and then you lock that away. And only... and you you really control access to those keys, right? You really don't let anyone in because there's no reason unless everything's on fire and we need to save the backups or we need to use the backups to get everything back up and running. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there's a weird, just not, that shouldn't have happened. The safe thing's just weird. The fact that someone stole the safe is impressive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the fact of the matter is that whoever was in charge of storing that USB thought that putting it in the safe would suffice because no one expected this to happen. For that office, yeah, definitely. I don't think that a physical attack would have been high on the radar. Um, universities all over are huge targets, and for ABTs. An ABT is an Applied Business Technology Program, and ABTs and universities are targets because of all the sensitive information they have. Uh, there's a lot of juicy facts and things that, like, there's a lot of research, right? And there's a lot of intellectual property, and there's a there's, it's a great area for people to really thrive and they're from all over and there's lots of great, uh, really it's the research and, and there's a lot of people who are just learning about security for the very first time. They're like, I'm going to go hack this UVic server. And man, I, I do not envy a university IT team, especially their security guys, man, they must, everything must be on fire all the time. <laughs> metaphorically speaking, right? Like they, they must be responding to things. And then that's where like the policies at UVic must come into play like crazy. Like there's appropriate use policies for the network and stuff like that. And uh, make no mistake, they've got, they've got systems that watch. They know what goes on. I'm sure it's, it's just kind of, you're in such a, we call it an adversarial environment, right? Like you cannot trust anyone. <laughs> And they're your internal users. It's like, forget about everyone outside of you, Vic. We have given them credentials to be on our Wi-Fi, and I can't trust them. Apparently, it's not that hard to find out information about strangers, as long as you have a couple key pieces of information. 
There are some reports that if I have something like your name and your birth date and your postal code, I can identify you to within like 80% or something. So with over 11,000 social insurance numbers and banking information, seems like you could do a lot of damage. So if someone has, say, your SIN, how would they use it? It's a super sensitive information. Um, it, it, it's an initial breach that happens, and that information either gets sold or it's just out for public consumption, and people go out and they just save it. They just save all the information they can. Google indexes it. Like there's, there's plenty of things out there that will make that information public. And so it's not hard to find once it's out. And so the thing about social security numbers and social insurance numbers is they're not changeable easily. So, oh, your password got breached. Change your password. Good luck doing that with your SSN. Uh, you can, I hear. Um, but imagine if, you know, a million people decided to change it at the same time. I'm sure that poor little office would get DDoS, right? DDoS stands for Distributed Denial of Service. Getting DDoSed means you've been the victim of this specific type of cyber attack where someone creates a network resource or machine to basically overwhelm an online service with a whole bunch of traffic, which stops the website from serving its actual users. It's like a traffic jam, but for a website. They would have an availability problem because everyone would be submitting at once. And, and then those five guys in that office would be like, oh my goodness, a million requests. We get like one a year. <laughs> uh, so... That's how the initial thing would happen. Then the guys that are really clever, they will sit on it for a while. Because if something like that happens, you probably have Equi Equifax protection or whatever. Pick your, pick your protection. That usually expires in a year. So bad guys know that. They sit on it for a year. Your protection is gone. There's no more watching. Now that's when you start seeing odd... Because if I have that, I can now open a bank account. I can now do a bunch of other things. There's a lot of information I can get from your SSN. And a lot of places use that as your single identity, right? In fact, most places do. The government does. <laughs> and so you, if you get that, you are, or you as the attacker are that person. And so all of a sudden, bank accounts get opened up and credit cards get maxed out and things like that. And then the onus is entirely on that person to figure out what happened, to battle it, and it's it's not, it can be an uphill battle. And Caleb says it's actually a huge security problem that our social insurance numbers are so permanent. I was like, why do we have this unchangeable number as a unique identifier? That makes no sense. We don't do that for anything else. Everything else is changeable, but for some reason we rely on this, this archaic number that apparently is a really big target painted on our backs and it, we're not very good at defending it right now and it's out there anyway so uh, yeah we're we're trying uh, we as the security community like that's it's always a cat and mouse game right it's that's what kind of makes it fun but also people's livelihoods are in the in the band bandwidth of this right they're they're in the mix and um yeah it's you track people down and you you find out who did what, when, and you kind of, maybe you get a prosecution. Um, but those people who had their identity stolen, it takes a long time. And their bank account just got flattened and they have no money for something. There are knock-on effects, right? Like um, can't pay their rent or something. Approaches to data security are definitely changing. Old school, long time ago, before my time, it used to be, oh, you hacked something, right? And so the guy's like, well, I'll offer you a job. Less so now, don't hack things, you just get arrested. 
Um, what it is now is very much a it you it's hard to prove your skills because there's definitely street cred. It's not a there are certifications. The people who care uh, who don't care about the certifications or like the guys that are actually really really good, they won't care about the certifications. But you need those certifications to get jobs. So it's kind of this dichotomy. Mm -hmm. uh, um, what you end up finding is is the people that like to break things are drawn into it. And you're not breaking it to to do anything malicious, mostly. But hacking at that time meant something totally different than it does now. The history of actually the term hacker was never supposed to be someone who breaks into a system and steals all the data. It was a hacker could be applied broadly. And it was very much, um, I'm using something that that's not what it was used for, but I'm using it for this purpose. If you think about the way the phrase life hack is used, like using Doritos to start a campfire, it was the same thing with hacking technology. An example of that was, <laughs> there was a classic old school hacker was um, a guy named Captain Crunch. That was his, his hacker name, his tag. And his name was Captain Crunch because he, he discovered that when you in the serial Captain Crunch, you would get a little whistle. And that whistle was at the direct frequency, like the perfect frequency in the old school telephony systems to give you free long distance calls. So you blow the whistle when you open up a payphone and you get free long distance calls anywhere. And so it was called phone freaking. And that's what a hacker, if I could, if I could just encapsulate that, it's just really like, oh, I found this interesting thing and it causes this other system to do this. And this is totally not what the whistle's purpose is, but yeah. And it's turned into now, like it's a very derogatory term in a lot of ways, just because it's, that's a nuance, right? Like that term has been has been lost to time, and now hackers are very much people who break into systems or or are paid to. Whether or not your data has already been leaked, there are ways to maintain some semblance of data security. Update your stuff straight up. Meaning, keep your software operating on the latest version, because the updated version publishes all the vulnerabilities of the last version, and hackers can use that information to infiltrate your system. The very first thing I do is what's called the enumeration phase. The enumeration phase just lists everything that's running, lists every piece of software and its version. And then I go and I look. WordPress, version this. Oh, look. Let's say it's... WordPress, I don't know, I'm just going to pick a number, I don't know, seven, right? Oh, well, it's eight now. Okay, well, what happened in between seven and eight? And the vulnerabilities are published. So I can just go search, and I'm like, okay, well, all of these vulnerabilities are, this is vulnerable to all of these attacks. Start at the top. And that is an automated process. I don't even have to be part of that. I can just, like, click a button and, oh, I got in here, I got in there, I got in here, I got in there. I'm like, oh, well, this one looks interesting. Like, that's what. That's how you do it. Mm -hmm. um, or that's how someone would do it. <laughs> <laughs> so patch your stuff. Because right out the gate, that's the first thing that's going to be tried. And if you have everything up to date, there's no vulnerabilities to be published for it yet. Patch your stuff. That's number one. Number two, don't click the link. You've probably gotten that email, the one that looks like it came from Apple or BMO, except for there's an extra character in the subject line and they're asking you to verify your account by giving them your password, or the one that's from the Nigerian prince who wants to transfer you money but needs your account number first. Don't click the attachment. If, if, even, if there's even just a modicum of doubt, double check it. I have seen 
someone hack into the email account of the CFO of a company. So they got in, he had a bad password, have good passwords too. <laughs> he had a bad password, it was a common password, was able to get in. Send an email as the CFO using the language that the CFO would use to someone else to transfer money. And they did. Just be like, would Bob really say that? Would he be asking me to send all my financials, right? Like that's a hard one to detect. And that came down to passwords. Um, and it came down to someone trusting, trusting that email. So that one's kind of an easy one to check. If someone sends you an email and they're like, oh, I'm gonna send you all this stuff, or please send us all this money, send them, I call it an out of band email, just text them. Be like, hey Bob, did you just ask for all this? And you're like, what? No. Mm -hmm. like, Jim, I want to change your email password yeah, and like disregard the email. And, um, random unsolicited email with an attachment is like, click this. And it looks, it looks something super tantalizing, right? Like it's, it's called fishing for a reason, right? You're, you're just dangling bait in front of people and you're just seeing who bites. It's scary to think about, but Caleb says we do have to be careful. Be suspicious. Keep, uh, keep the tinfoil hat strong, <laughs> you know, like keep it big uh, because it's becoming more and more prominent. Um, and passwords, like love them or hate them, passwords around for, a, they're going to be around for a long time. Make them long. We can crack a 10 digit password in two hours. Granted, I need a lot of horsepower to do it, but I can do it. And people do. And so make them long. That's like the complexity requirements. Throw those out. Like, yes, you need, it would be nice. It adds to your search space. Make them long. Passphrase. Make it a passphrase. And that, honestly, if you do those three things, patch, don't click the links, strong passwords. Oh, use a password manager, even better. A password manager is a super easy way to make sure all of your accounts don't get compromised if one service with your password gets hacked. It keeps all of your passwords encrypted and in one place and generates strong passwords for you and automatically inserts them when you log into different sites. And for the, the average person, there's just so much noise. How do you find the signal through the noise? And, and it's hard. I do think that if they were, if we were able to patch have strong passwords and find a way for people just to not click those links and, and PDF or whatever attachments, a significant portion of breaches would not happen and personal security would go up a lot. Thinking about how vulnerable we actually are when our information gets in the wrong hands is probably not what's on your mind when you're checking your email or when you're providing your direct deposit information to your new employer. Nobody wants to be paranoid. It sounds bleak, but the future is pretty promising. There's a lot of things coming down the pipe. And it's not black and white, good versus evil, civilians versus hackers. Caleb talked a lot about what the environment favors, meaning what is being asked of people. So if people are being asked to do a certain thing, like get their work done quickly, those people are going to find a way to optimize for that. So he thinks about how to challenge what the environment favors so that instead of creating tools for phishing and scamming people, People can use those skills to advance technology in a progressive direction. It's interesting because everyone's kind of demonized hackers in the past, and it's very interesting to see now that shows are coming out, and they are kind of seen as like, oh no, it's not a, it's never black and white. Right? Like the same guy who did something good one day may do something bad the next, and uh, it's you just can't, you can't think like that. It's just 
what does the environment favor? Let's let's encourage them to do the right thing. Because these people, if they're anything like me, they're they're interested more by the challenge. Like, oh man, like I got in. Right? And there's such a huge dopamine high when you get in. It's 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 pretty much. It's, it's, there's a lot of adrenaline going on because you spend a lot of time working on things like that. Criminals, someone once said, were humans before they were criminals, in most cases. It's good to see the, the future is bright. This episode of You in the Ring was produced by Nicola Watts with help from Andrew Hines, Ben Kramalowski, and Brendan McGee. Our executive producer is Mary Decker. Thank you to all of our guests, Detective Kowalowicz, Katie Sage, and Caleb Short. This program would not be possible without the generous support of the Community Radio Fund of Canada and the UVic Student Awards and Financial Aid Work Study Program. If you like what you heard, tune in next week and subscribe, rate, and review You in the Ring wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of You in the Ring is brought to you by The Grad House. One of the best-kept secrets on campus, The Grad House is for everyone. They offer a range of house-made meals that cater to diverse dietary needs. And with weekly specials, you are sure to find something new every time you visit. Located right off the bus loop, The Grad House is a great place for lunch, dinner, or just hanging out with friends. The Grad House. You don't have to be a grad student to eat here. Hey, give me your ear. Let's, uh, let's pull back the curtain for a minute and check out behind the scenes of CFPB's podcasts. Hi, my name's Irasap Ntaku. Um, I helped work on some episodes of Taking Up Space, and I really enjoyed the process. I learned a lot. One was, um, about this drag queen and... It gave a perspective um, on queer history that I feel like was really local. And oftentimes we hear about queer history in terms of these like larger things that happen across a continent. But in this case, it was like a local person talking about their experience. And then the other one was about the Indian Act. And um, I learned so much from that, from narrating that. And um, it's it's like so frustrating to learn this, but it's also like crucial to learn this. And so I'm really glad that I could help hopefully more people learn it um, by listening to the podcast. Overall, I think that the podcasts coming out of CFUV right now are fire. They are amazing. And um, I'm definitely going to play them for folks I know um, and encourage like other radio organizations that I work with to kind of try and do things like that. And um, I really like the idea of, you know, putting together these episodes about things that are really important and crucial um, and bringing in a lot of folks to help make them and make them a reality. So I definitely have learned a lot from not only these um, two podcasts that I work on, but then also just like observing the larger CFUV podcast structure and watching Mary work her magic um, and all the other people involved behind the scenes that make it all work. So I'm really thankful for them and for the larger um, CFUV 
uh, organization for making this a possibility. If you like this episode about how technology affects our lives, you should check out All Access's episode about recording.